I'm Elena Landsberg-Lewis, your host of Grandmothers on the Move, the podcast that kicks old stereotypes to the curb. Come meet these creative, outrageous, authentic, adventurous, irreverent, and powerful disruptors and influencers. Grandmothers, from the living room to the courtroom, making powerful contributions in every walk of life. We know them most intimately as loving caregivers, the older women in our lives with a thousand stories about their grandchildren and pictures in their purses. In this podcast, you'll come to know even more about our grandmothers. They are galvanized, determined, and are guaranteed to get you thinking. What drives them? What are they up to? What is the potential of grandmother power, and how is it changing the world? Grandmothers are on the move. You don't want to be left behind. Hi, it's Ilana. Welcome back to Grandmothers on the Move. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking to Gloria Miguel, one of the founding members of Spider Woman Theatre, which she founded with her two sisters. Gloria Miguel is a Kuna Rapahanok, and she has a long history of writing thoughtful pieces, performing all around the world with Spider Woman Theatre, touring through Europe, Australia, New Zealand. She toured the United States in Grandma, a one-woman show, and toured Canada in the original Native Earth production of Thompson Highway's The Red Sisters, and performed in Native Earth Son of Ayash in Toronto. Gloria is 92 and still going strong, acting and writing, and has an extraordinary life story and a long history of thinking about the role of theatre in her own life in society in general, and certainly in First Nations and Indigenous communities, and particularly in the lives of First Nations women. Welcome to Grandmothers on the Move, Gloria. It's wonderful to have you with us today. Good. Thank you. I've been doing some reading about your quite remarkable life, and I thought we would start early on. I read something about how you grew up in Red Hook, New York. It's in Brooklyn, I believe. Yes. And I also read somewhere that you had talked about not feeling comfortable in Red Hook. How did your family end up there? And and what was it that was dislocating for you? I don't have all the details. My grandmother traveled from Virginia, the Rappahannock Reservation, and my grandfather was somewhere up in Buffalo. And they ended up in Red Hook in an Italian neighborhood, basically it was Italian. There are a few Scandinavians there also. They rented a house, and then eventually my grandfather bought the house. And we still have that house in our family. Uh, it is on DeGraw Street between Smithson Court in Red Hook, Brooklyn, which is now Carroll Gardens or Cobble Hill. It's gentrified. Now it's very gentrified, that neighborhood. Yes, yes. My grandfather used to work at Erie Basin. I've never been there, but some kind of a dock. And my father had many jobs. My father's a Kuna Indian from Central America. He was a longshoreman, and every morning he'd go to work, and they would hire him every morning. And they called him Wahoo, Chief Wahoo. It's not awful. He went to work as a wenchman on the Brooklyn docks with the Italian folks. And there couldn't have been too many indigenous families in Red Hook. 
There were none. Later on in life, I found out that about six blocks away, there was a Presbyterian church, and they were connected with the Iroquois. And there are a few Iroquois in that neighborhood. So we got to know them. My sister knew them a little more. And then as more Native people came to New York, some of them stranded from the cowboy rodeos and the Wild West shows. Some of them were stranded and they stayed in New York. And my father was very good at making contact with them. And some of the people stayed in our house. They had no place to live. You know, people from all over the country, Canada and Central and South America. And one day we picked up a guy in the street, you know, who was standing by a lamppost. And me and my mother said, that guy looks like an Indian. We went home and got my father and he picked him up, brought him to our house. He was Sioux and Irish and a Rodeo horseman. And he stayed with us. Mm-hmm. You know, he was our babysitter. About 15 to 20 years he stayed with us. Amazing. So it was, we recognized Native people right away in the streets, sure. you know. Sure. And so families came to live with us sometimes. I remember one family in particular stayed with us a couple of weeks. Other people just who were stranded from the Rodeos and Wild West shows in New York. I don't think people know a lot about that, about these Wild West shows. And I know that your family was in sideshows, those terrible yes. sideshows. And I yes. wonder if you could tell us about those Wild West shows and those sideshows and what your experience yes. was. Well, my family itself, we weren't in the rodeos, but we were in the sideshows in Coney Island and places like Canarsie. They had a playland or something, and they hired our family to come every day in the summertime and set up a little village. And we hired friends that we had got, we got to know from Wisconsin and various reservations in the West, and they joined us, and we set up an Indian village Next to the freaks, there was a freak show and <laughs> an Indian village and other little uh, concessions, I'd call it, in Kanasi. Our family would go there every day in the summer and sing and dance and and people would watch us. <laughs> it was, it's really, when I think of it, it was like animals almost being watched. Yeah. Oh, look at the Indians eating. So dehumanizing. Uh, yeah, my daughter wrote a piece about it. My father was a very good dancer, and he did choreograph a lot of dances from Lakuna and, and other nations. And so he would sing and dance, and the other nations would come, the Ho-Chunks from Wisconsin and the Iroquois, some Hopis, and sing and dance. And it was a strange way to live, as I think about it years later. We bought this colonialism and lived in it, and didn't I didn't realize Hey, that was my life that I accepted as a child, you know, and lived it. And then I think about it now. I said, my God, we bought it. We we were like included with the freaks. And not that I'm against freaks, but, you know, like, and and lived that life in the summertime. And we did all kinds of work like Ballyhoo for John Wayne movies and accepted it, sang at church conventions is something I was like it's a perfect Indian family oh and I remember going to a church once our family was sitting on some fake rocks and there was an American flag blowing and the chorus in the background was singing oh beautiful for spacious guys and 
I, I think to myself, the world life I had, you know. But I bought that, you know, that, right. that was part of our lives. My right. father made a living on the side of being a longshoreman doing that work. That's how I got into show business, actually. We, we continued that at least until the 40s and 50s. Nowadays, it's so shockingly racist and unacceptable. Yes. I thought that was a normal way, you know. How did we do that? This is colonialism. And did you ever get the sense that your parents struggled with it? I think they enjoyed it because they enjoyed being with other Native people, dancing and singing and making lifelong friends. And now there are very few people that still do that. Now now people are more aware of being indigenous and being proud of it and doing political work. Things have changed so much. Yeah. Uh, But still so far to go. I wanted to ask you about you got into folk dancing and... Oh, yes. That took you all over the place. How? What was that about? There was a German woman we met during the war. She used to sing Deutschland, Deutschland, Uber, Allies. <laughs> My father and mother made friends with them, and they had a daughter. She befriended us. So she was interested in folk dancing. She took us one evening to a place, I believe it was St. Mark's Place, and where they had a folk dance group. It was a Jewish group. And I was so interested. We were, me and my sister Elizabeth, we did dances from Italy and France and Germany and Greece. And it was so wonderful. And it was interesting. I met people from all over the world. I danced almost every night and learned all these different dances. It was a great experience. Am I right that you met your husband? People would ask, how did you two meet? I had many boyfriends from all over the world. It was fascinating. But there was one day I met a woman who had connections. She had a boyfriend upstate New York, and she said that they were having a party in this weekend, and would I like to go up there? And I met this fascinating Jewish refugee from Paris, and I guess we fell in love. We were both so different. The only thing we had in common is we faced annihilation, our racial background. The Indians were annihilated and the Jews were also. So we had that in common and I married him. Well, and as you say, you were so different, but you were both survivors. Yes, we were both survivors. The thing is, I didn't realize the emotional what he went through emotionally. Of course, he'd be disturbed by escaping from Paris and he had to say goodbye to his mother and father who had been interned already and go up in the mountains. And he was 14 years old. He worked in, on farms. And at the end of that war, he was in Spain. And the Red Cross found him and he had no more family. So they sent him to New York to had two uncles. That's how he got to New York. But he was a, such a survivor that a lot of things that I became emotionally aware later on, I said to myself, you know, I took on more than I could chew. I wasn't a perfect woman either. <laughs> My survival background, you know. But we got along for 23 years and then... Yeah, that's a long time. Yeah, and we have two great children. One is Monique in Toronto, and one is uh, Raphael, who's a social worker in Minnesota. Yeah, they're quite interesting on their own. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. And And a grandson, my grandson, and that's Monique's son. 
And then you ended up, I guess it was your husband who moved to Oberlin to teach. Is that right? My husband, after we married, he had no high school degree or anything because he was a survivor. And I realized that he had a great mind. And here he was selling vacuum cleaners or working in Witty Brothers on a multiless operating printing machine, you know. And I said, you know, you got to use your brain. And he said, nope, I don't want to do that. I'm, and I'm not an intellectual. I don't want to. He was an intellectual. But he said, I don't want to follow the books. He threw away all his books and everything, you know. And I said to him, I don't know where I got the courage. If he didn't go back to school, children didn't leave him. And he went back to school. He went to Brooklyn College. And in three years, he was ready to go to Stanford University and study for a PhD. So we took up from New York City, me and my two children, and moved to Stanford, where he started getting his PhD. He didn't write his dissertation yet. He had partially that when they said he had to go to pick a school to work at. And we, he, he had to see out of New York University, Amherst, Irvine, and Oberlin. For some reason, I picked Oberlin, and he said, okay. And we ended up in Oberlin, where he was a French professor, wow. which was a, a whole different story altogether, a different way. I was a faculty wife all of a sudden. Yeah, that, was a, that was a big story. <laughs> Well, that must yeah. have been really strange for you. And you were you were moving toward or you were already acting. Yeah, I was mm-hmm. very interested in theater and dance and singing. I was a singer. In California, I studied art. I didn't uh, do anything about my theater or voice. But when I moved to Oberlin, or which is a conservatory, I was the only one, the only one faculty wise that didn't have a PhD. So to make a long story short, I was a nursery school teacher there. And then I decided these kids know more than I do. I'm going <laughs> to see if I can get back to school. I did get a Native American scholarship to go to Oberlin. And so I did. And I studied theater there for three years. We were there 15 years or so. I was there. We started rehearsing for Spider-Woman. That's another long story. Well, that's something uh, I want to know about before there was ever a (laughs) (laughs) Spider-Man. Well, Spider-Woman was a uh, Muriel. My sister was in New York, and she was interested in the women's movement at that time. And so she had been working. She got very lucky, got into open theater with connections. I had a lot of connections in New York. And so I connected her to some dancer who Muriel started to dance. And then through the dance, she got into open theater. So she was working on her feet, learning on her feet, and very interested in the women's movement. She decided to start a group of Native women. And I was studying in Oberlin. My other sister was studying in a group in theater also, my oldest sister. And so she one day got to, she was working with women in the women's movement. They were not actors, but all three of us were into theater by then. So Muriel decided to get us together and see if we could rehearse and start a group because the, most of the women she was working with were not actors. There was one woman who was a singer and dancer, Hopi and Winnebago, Native American, and she told Spider-Woman stories from the Hopi in Arizona. There's a big monument there in New Mexico of the Spider-Woman in their culture who wove as she told stories about people and freeing their lives and many, many stories. So 
this Hopi woman that we knew from our group of people in uh, New York City told these stories. And unfortunately, she passed away. When we started our group, the three sisters, you know, thinking of a name, we thought of Josephine and her Spider Woman stories. So we said that would be a great name for us, Spider Woman Theater. So we started in 1975 rehearsing. I went back and forth to New York from Oberlin. And then in 1976, I divorced my husband. My husband divorced me. And I moved back to New York. And we started Spider-Woman. And, and that's another big story. That's another so big story. Stories. You did a very, I think, important and powerful play, Women and Violence. Women, that was our first piece. We had to do a lot of research into our own selves, how we feel and what we were and what we were doing. So we did a lot of research in what kind of women we were. And at Oberlin, I took a couple of courses with Herbert Blau and Bill Irwin, and Bill Irwin is a clown. I took on the persona of a clown looking for herself and finding out what I'm all about, because at that age, I was almost 50. My cloud is looking for myself, and uh, we all had our own persona. One was a trickster, one was a perfect woman, and we, we wrote stories on that subject, on ourselves. It, it came along at the right time. We not only we were the three Native women, we had other women, and we were all different ages, shapes, sizes, and colors. So the first production we had, it was quite different. And the Phil Arno from the Maryland Theater, they had a big theater festival. And he came to New York and saw one of our pieces that we had at, performed at the American Indian Community House. He invited us to that festival where there were entrepreneurs and people from all over the world. We were sort of like a hit because we were so different and in some ways shocking, and I guess we were quite different. We were just being ourselves, but we were quite different. There were entrepreneurs from all over the world, and one man, Luis Valdez, who had the Teatro Capesino in California, he said to all the entrepreneurs, if you don't hire Spider-Woman, forget it. And apparently they all came to our shows. And our first year of performing, we were invited to the Nancy World Theater Festival in France. Wow. And so, you know, we didn't have coffee. I didn't even have a suitcase, you know. And then <laughs> we had to gather money and everything. We couldn't fit. Well, none of us spoke French, although I did have a little link because my ex-husband taught French. At that time, he was angry with me because he said I abandoned him for the theater, which I guess I did. So we went to France, Nancy, the World Theater Festival, our first year in existence. And from there, people from Italy and the Netherlands and Germany and France, you know, we went there for a couple of weeks and we stayed for a couple of months because they thought we were great. It was amazing that we had to go out of the country. And we did that for about five years. Uh, you know, then we started to go across the country, America, and then we went into Canada. That's making a very long story short. It's a lifetime. And what was the play Women in Violence? What inspired well, you all to well, do it? 
What were you talking about? We were talking about the violence in our lives that we survived. And for a while there, as I said before, I was sort of brainwashed. Was there violence? God, was there? And my older sister said, oh, there's no violence in my life. But we hid it. I guess it was a survival mechanism. I don't know. Then we started thinking and writing stories about the violence in our own home, let alone our lives. We talked about and wrote stories about the violence in our lives and what we were doing about it and what we were, what kind of character we thought we were. And we each had stories about this. And we put it together with the songs, some dances, and jokes, uh, because it was quite serious. And we said, that's too serious, you'll be crying. <laughs> so we had jokes and funny tales. We made up our own clown. We each had our own clown persona. That was more or less what it was about. Then, of course, at that time, it was Wounded Knee up in uh, South Dakota. We had some stories about Wounded Knee because we did go over to Wounded Knee, the, went into a Sundance. My daughter left home at that time. She was 17 and she joined Wounded Knee Uprising. She's been working in that vein ever since. She has her own life too, crazy life. It's all sort of worked together that women and Native issues of art and theater. And it worked very well for us. I think that was me. I found myself, you know. It's amazing. That, that, yeah. And it's, and it's such a powerful mode of expression, right? I know that so often we learn and absorb things through reading or listening to people talk or studying, but there is an extraordinary way that theater in particular reaches right into your soul, right into your heart and yeah, right and so right. Yeah, because I think that's what keeps me alive. I'm 92. I'm still performing, you know, full of energy as I used to be, and I can't get down and roll on the floor anymore. But it still keeps me alive. You know, I, I realize that that's where my brain is. My body is losing a lot of its functioning. <laughs> you know, it's every day it's a fight. It's a big fat fight. Just to keep alive and moving and thinking. But at the theater, you can just think of little stories that still go on. Like a one little tale I tell now is that, you know, look at me. I'm still here. You can touch me. See me? And I love doing that. I'm still here performing. I'm still here living, dancing, fighting. And people look at me and they, they don't realize it's not only me. There's younger and older and yet to come. We're still here talking, working, learning, dancing, singing. And I love that piece. I have a few pieces that I just like doing. And is that, I read something, it was just a reference to it. And I wanted to ask you about it because I was so interested. And I just think I read one line that you had mentioned that you wrote a piece called Something Old, Something New, Something Borrowed, oh, yeah. Something Blue. Tell me about yes, that. I, I performed that in Toronto, Native Earth. See, I t decided I needed a one-woman show because when there's no work, I got I can work on my own. I try to do, but it's not easy. I just it's a collaboration of all my experiences. When I put it together, it is something old that I put together. Then I put together a story about some, being something new, and then I borrowed some stories like others. Uh, that English writer who wrote a story about a woman in a, in a rocking chair. That was borrowed. And something blue, because I sing. And I had a story about being in a sort of low-down car, I call it, in France. 
and a woman sang La Vie en Rose, and I copied that, the way she sang it. So that was something borrowed, something blue, something old, something new. I did only performed it for a while, and then I went on to something else was Spider Woman, but I think I'd like to get back to it and renew that one-woman show. That one, it sounds uh, really wonderful, and I, that's kind of where I wanted to ask you about. It's quite an extraordinary life and an extraordinary long life of expression through the theater and through dance and through song. And I wondered if you can reflect a little bit on how the themes that you've dealt with in your performance what has that meant in your in your own life? How do they go together, your lived life? And I know there isn't really a separation, but in terms of how you come to the themes that you performed, how you worked with your sisters on that and others. I realize that it was sort of medicinal in a way and healing. Because mm-hmm. as I told his story, I sort of relive it. And by telling it, I got to understand myself and I tried not to be so morbid or have the characters. Some people think I'm mean. Uh, why I was like that, how I got that way. And by talking about it and performing and living it and understanding things that I did as a child, basically I would say it's healing. I'm still surviving, but I think it's because of this work, um, you know, that uh, Things still happen to me, like I have a hearing aid and I lost it this week. <laughs> right. and I, I'm so upset about it. I have to get a new one. Fortunately, I have insurance. You know, and, and, and so I say, well, maybe I'll write a story about it. It sort of like gets me out of being, oh, me, poor me, sad me. <laughs> you know, I got to get up and go out and see people and do things and and that will keep me alive. My health is pretty good, but I was sick a lot this winter. So it keeps me um, from being afraid, you know, of getting old and decrepit and dying. Right. So that's a losing battle, but <laughs> it helps. It helps. And it's also, I hear you saying it's healing and it's also a life source. But you've really done this work as an Indigenous woman, talking about the issues and bringing those issues to others through performance. Talk to me about that a little bit. I'm sure that wasn't easy in the early years. And and I wonder what? how you experience it now. In the beginning, it was work. It was hard work, but Easy. I loved it so much. As time went on, I realized that some of these stories and the, were universal, like in Italy and in France, there were women who went through the same thing, except they had more handicaps, so life is a little more difficult. And then going across country to reservations, we sort of woke up women in a way. This, you know, the one reservation I remember uh, at the end of my story, I tell a story about almost being raped. But I survived it. And this woman came up and whispered in my ear that she went through the same thing. And I said, you could start a group and talk about it, your stories and try to get out. Except in a reservation, you're more confined. You have a lot of the men who are working, uh, who might harm you, who are the leaders. You know, but that's interesting because my uncle in my own home was uh, abusing me. So, you know, it's, it happened like it was so good a couple of years ago. When Lady Gaga wrote that song, mm-hmm. It Could Happen to You. Right. Did you ever hear that? Yes, yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. And every woman has a story. Mm-hmm. Every woman. And either they were healed or, or it held them back or they were did something about it. But every woman, unfortunately, has a story. 
we went beyond our own personal lives and went out to the stories of the world and stuff. I think that's what it's so apropos today with the women who disappear. And that's what our new piece that we're taking to Canada, Material Witness. Mm, I wanted to ask you about that because I know that you're going to be touring in Canada. and and Yeah, we'll be in Peterborough. That's the closest place we'll be in to Toronto. Right. And then you're also going to take the show to reservations as well here, right? Yeah, we're going to Manitoulin Island Mm -hmm. and a few other. I don't have all the lists. Okay, well, we I'll definitely get it so that I can let people know so they can come and see it. And so Material Witness is about the missing and murdered uh, Indigenous women. So our stories, you know, it's funny. I tell, tell the same story that I did in uh, Women and Violence because it's still going on. I tell the same story in a different way. But it's about just waking up women and saying, you can do something about telling your story. Don't be afraid to tell your story. Because that helps you to heal and go on with your life. And we have a workshop that goes with it where we make patchwork pieces and put it together for a backdrop. And in those patchwork pieces, a material is a story. We give directions of what to think about as you're putting your pieces of material together. And that there's a workshop for that. And that's very healing, too. It's a full circle. Yeah, it, yes. Oh, yes. And they're still going on. It's like sometimes I think we just hit the tip of the iceberg. It's so deep. You know, yeah. So many indigenous, a lot of women, all kinds of women. One of the things that I hear over and over is how women, but I think it's the elders and the older women amongst us who really are reflecting on resilience, how you build resilience through community, through art. And I hear it over and over again, and I realize that it's something that younger people really lose by not listening to and talking to and coming to the elder women in particular in our midst. But I find that in a lot of young people, they're so busy in their cell phones and their lives and how important they are. And I must have done that too when I was young, but I never lost contact with my elders. It's interesting. I haven't figured that out yet. What did it mean to you to be connected to your elders when you were young? Well, I lived with my elders all the time. So I left home, there were elders in the house. And when I went back home, there were elders and they all died, of course. But I was connected. I used to call them and talk to them and uh, until they couldn't go out and walk anymore. I'd talk and walk and take them out and, you know, do the best I could. There were sometimes I saw some uh, stories of I feel a little guilty that I didn't pay attention to my Aunt Ida as much as I should have, and she died alone. But, you know, I had more, just my mother was the last one to survive. And of course, I had to survive myself and work. And I couldn't live with her. And I was connected with her. I just read this book about women getting older. And one of the things that this author, Mary Pfeiffer, one of the things she says that there are so many challenges that come with aging. When you get past your 70s, she says, on the other hand, Actually, women who are older have so many skills that they've developed over a lifetime that they're probably the only ones who could deal with those challenges. Maybe, but some of them are no use mm-hmm. in this day and age. But, right. You know, some of them are. Like the other day, I fell oh, and no. I walked with a cane and I lost control of one of my legs and I fell. Or you try to think of all the things like I could use to help myself. Because as I was falling, I said, relax, Gloria, you're going to fall. 
fall easy. And then I fell. And then I said to myself, I'm not hurt. I'm a little, my knees ache, my side hurts, but I didn't break any bones. So you got to get up, Gloria. From where I fell, so I looked around my apartment. I scooted on my behind to my easy chair and I put pillows on the floor. It took me about 20 minutes to get up. Yes. You know, I'm that glad sounds, you can laugh about it. <laughs> it sounds terrible. Well, I talked to myself. It helped. Well, it helped me this time because I didn't hurt myself. Right. And I have to think about the next fall. Right. You know, so, so those challenges I could live without, but I know they're going to be okay the next time, the next time, you know. Right. And, and they're a good metaphor because the truth is there's the real physical challenges. And then I'm sure there are emotional challenges. Too. Oh, yes. So those challenges that I have to live with in the house and going out and taking a cab, fighting the crowds in the street. It's, <laughs> right. it, it, it's interesting. Yeah. And unfortunately, I live in a house for theater people, not only theater, people in the art. It's called West Best Artist Housing. And there's a lot of older women here who were in the art. We don't get together too much, but once in a while we talk downstairs in the lobby. And I was an icon couple in January where they appreciated me and that I was still working and as old as I am. But those things help that I live here and this place and I get a lot of help. Yeah. And community matters. I'm just close to one woman here. There's no more men in my life, so I'm alone. Even that's a challenge. I think I'm not afraid of being alone as much as I was three years ago. That's a big challenge, loneliness. On top of all the other issues. You have this solitude as part of your life, but then you're on the road and you're traveling and you're performing. That's an extraordinary, I don't know how many 92-year-olds are on tour. I guess not. I go to the doctor, Mount Sinai here in New York, and they said I'm in good shape, more or less, for 92. And I still have my thinking ability. My uh, memory is not as great. I can't dance anymore, but I can move. Yeah, it's quite a challenge. And I always hope that I could live as long as I can and still have my brain, you know? Mm. That's a big thing. So, so many things to think about. Like, I thought, what am I going to talk about to this woman? <laughs> and I, there's a lot to talk about, right? Mm-hmm. It's sure. amazing. Yeah, there really yeah. Are. There's so much to yeah. think about and to hear and, and learn from you. When you're thinking about this chapter of life and you think about what it means to be doing what you're doing as you're getting older and relationships with people, some close closer than others, some very complicated, and your relationship to your art, to the theater. What is it that you feel most deeply about in this moment? I guess my ability and what I have to do to survive, the connections. How do you feel about the contribution that you've made, the extraordinary number of people that you've reached and the Indigenous women that you've reached, but also worldwide and the contribution that you've made? How do you reflect on that now? Oh, well, you know, sometimes I think I didn't do much. So what? Other women are doing it and they're doing more. Maybe I'm just a little disappointed that I didn't go any further than I have. There's so much I want to do. And I don't feel like, oh, I'm so great and I did so much. I just felt that there could have been more. I should be doing more. I'm not doing enough. And yet you haven't stopped doing. Yeah, well, I have to go out. I have to get up. Even if I feel bad sometimes the more day, oh, I'm going to walk and then I can't walk. I got to get up and do it because <laughs> there's no one else to do it. But I mean, I'm 
I'm like only the person that can uh, help myself, and mm-hmm. you know. So I sometimes feel like I didn't do the right thing. I didn't do enough. Or there's so much more to do. I don't feel like sitting down. See how great I am. It's like I did it to survive. I had to do it because it was in me, and I wanted to move in that direction. I don't feel any great. What do you call it? Elation. Mm-hmm. I just feel there's a, there's I gotta do more. I gotta do more. There's more to do. You know. Sometimes I just say it's a miracle I survived, and that I'm still here. But by all rights, if I didn't have the right turn or idea or insight, I could have become a bum in the street, a prostitute, or you know. It's amazing that I did whatever I did. I guess I, some things I would never do again. But I'd marry the same man again. I'd have two beautiful children. Mm-hmm. I'd, I'd do a lot of go back to school again. It's hard. Sometimes you you have no real control over it. It's just a, a good idea, and you go with it. I still have life in me, and I don't want to be put on the shelf. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember feeling that with my elders. I just felt that they were part of my family. Mm-hmm. When I think of them, they have a lot to do with my life. I never did get along with my mother's mother, my grandmother. You know, if I, I learned from her, but uh, she never accepted me. Just in terms of the elders themselves, that there's still a lot in them, and even if they're quiet, and that, so to appreciate them. And I tried to appreciate them when I was young. I maybe did do a good enough job, but I sure would like to be appreciated more by my the youngsters in my family mm-hmm. and show them a little more love. And you know, of course, I would be there in return because I have a lot still to offer. Yeah, fair enough. But but certainly, it's an important thing to hear. I think that the elder women in our midst are not just resources and not just family, but are people who need to feel acknowledged and loved and appreciated. And that it's not just about what role they play or where they sit in the constellation of our family, but are still vibrant thinking people. That's why I wrote that piece. See me? I'm still here. Touch me. Hold me. I'm performing, living, loving, dancing, hating. Think about my memorial or what to do with my things when I'm dead. Yeah, it's a powerful cry from the heart. Yeah, I think so. I'm glad that I heard from you, Gloria. And I think that lots of people appreciate how how honest you are. I guess that's one of the things I always felt free about once I decided to grow and listen to myself and my insight. Care for yourself. That's done well by you, I think. Also, as an artist, I think that's probably something that artists really teach us. Yes, I hope so. <laughs> well, I'm going to try and make it to Peterborough because I want to see this show. And, Good. And now uh, yeah. come backstage. Or yes, definitely. Be, yeah. No, I'm going to be there for sure. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah. Good. Thank Ayana. you, Gloria. Okay. I appreciate it so much. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. I'm Ilana Landsberg-Lewis, your host of Grandmothers on the Move. If you want to find out more about me or the podcast, go to grandmothersonthemove.com and come back next week for another episode.